This is hell. Here in Chicago, we voted for a new mayor yesterday, as well as new city council members known here as aldermen and the new city clerk. These elections uh, aren't usually much more than a rubber stamp for the rubber stamp our aldermen have been giving Chicago's boss mayors for generations. But this time, real change is in the air following several scandals that have threatened Chicago's latest version of the infamous machine. Here to give us his reaction to yesterday's vote in Chicago, political writer and Indies Times web editor Miles Kempf Lawson wrote the article, Chicago's political revolution, social movements, ousted Rahm Emanuel, now they're taking on the neoliberal machine. Welcome to This Is Hell, Miles. Thank you so much for having me, John. Hannah Steinkopf-Frank also contributed to Miles' story. Miles' most recent writing includes his story, Good Riddance to Rahm Emanuel, an Enemy of the People Since 1998. You can follow Miles on Twitter at Miles Clausen, that's K-L-A-S-S-I-N, and you can find Miles' writing at InTheseTimes.com. Now that the election is has happened, Miles, what is the potential for real change with whoever the next mayor is? Well, uh, I think we have to say at the outset here that what happened last night is really nothing short of a political earthquake in the city. Um, the impact will be felt for a long time. Um, and it was also, you know, this didn't happen out of nowhere. Groups um, have been organizing. You know, Chicago has long been known for having a very active social justice scene in terms of the, uh, you know, amount of uh, work around issues like affordable housing and public education that have gone on, but that, that work hasn't always been reflected in the leadership in the city, and certainly not at the mayoral level. So what happened last night is that the groundwork that many of these social movements have put in for many years, and this is what I write about in the piece, it's uh, it's really come to fruition through uh, the election of a number of progressive challengers to city council, as well as a number of these challengers who are going to run off elections in April, um, which just means that they were able to keep the current incumbent in power under 50% of the vote, or, you know, in an open race, just nobody got 50% of the vote. So um, those races will be decided in April, and that includes the mayor, the, the mayor's race. But regardless of what um, who becomes mayor? You know, you mentioned it's Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle that are going head to head. The mayor's office, for so long, has been a, a site of concentrated power, and certainly that's been true under Rahm Emanuel, who, you know, he's one of the most powerful Democrats in the country. He came in from uh, Obama's administration. He has powerful connections. He headed the DCCC before. He's a former investment banker, very connected to finance capital. Um, and he's been able to have a pretty iron fist in terms of how he's operated. His city council has been essentially a rubber stamp, is what they call it. It just means they've gone along with him on basically all of his plans. Whoever is the next mayor, whether it's Lightfoot or Preckwinkle, is going to be far weaker than Rahm Emanuel has been, and that means that the city council itself will have a much stronger voice in guiding the legislative direction of the city. And with this whole, you know, swap of new progressives that look to be uh, taking office um, later on this year, that's going to mean that issues that previously had not been on the table, things like rent control, things like, you know, ending school privatization, actual police accountability, those are going to be on the agenda. Um, So I think that that's the real potential that is represented by what happened last night. And I think the machine really took it by surprise. The early reports were all about the low voter turnout, which 
seemingly would uh, benefit the incumbents or the machine because it's as if nobody has been inspired to vote. But the people that did come out to vote were the folks that were most motivated by these insurgent campaigns. Um, and you can see that by the fact that, you know, everybody was pretty worried, everybody in the progressive community was pretty worried about Bill Daley making it into the runoff, yet another Daley. We've already had two Daley mayors here in Chicago, um, and he had massive amounts of money. Uh, he had put it on the campaign ads, and people were very concerned that he was going to um, make it into the runoff, and he obviously represents a far more conservative agenda than a lot of these other people that were running for mayor. He didn't even make the runoff. So um, the people that were able to benefit from the electoral landscape this time really were the progressives. And because of that, we're really seeing a monumental shift to the left in the city. You know, you were mentioning the impact of activists on this election, on yesterday's election. Uh, Has there been, when you're responding to that question, I started wondering, has there been a change of focus by Chicago's activists onto electoral politics? Is that why this change is happening now? Because, you know, uh, it, during Occupy in 2011, there are a lot of people who are insisting that the activists at Occupy Wall Street, all the Occupy activists should be focusing on electoral politics and not focusing on these bigger issue items. So I was wondering if maybe in the wake of Occupy, in the wake of 2011, there has been a shift within activists saying that they should be focusing on electoral politics. Is, has that, is that what has taken in place here in Chicago? Yeah, I think that is fair to say. I, I, you know, some of these groups have worked around electoral politics for a while. Um, one of them is called United Working Families, and it's or affiliated with the uh, Working Families Party, which folks know from New York and other places nationally. Uh, but locally, that group is made up of community organizations, uh, labor unions, the most progressive labor unions in the city, including the Chicago Teachers Union, um, as well as SEIU Healthcare, um, that organization, UWF, has for a long time focused on recruiting and training and running candidates for office, and specifically um, progressive candidates of color. And a number of the candidates who they backed uh, were successful, and that includes the incumbent who actually won in 2015, Carlos Ramirez Rosa. He represents the 35th Ward. He is uh, one of the most, he's probably the most progressive member of the city council. He has fought Rom tooth and nail on policies ranging from police accountability to, um, to the regressive fees and fines and taxes, the austerity that Rom has tried to um, shove down the throats of Chicagoans. Um, he was endorsed and backed by UWF back in 2015, but this time around there's a number of other candidates who either um, one or going to runoffs, and that includes people like Maria Haddon in the 49th Ward, uh, as well as Rosana Rodriguez in the 33rd Ward. Um, so the groups, a lot of these groups have uh, focused on electoral politics before, but I think there really was a new uh, momentum behind not only running for office, but building out a campaign infrastructure and for grassroots movements and activists to get involved. It's come through a a number of different ways. One of the interesting things that a group here focused on called Asada's Daughters, a group of um, left-wing African-American women who have organized to stop police violence in the city. Um, And what they focused on was early on in um, 2016, actually, there was a race for prosecutor for the uh, 
state's attorney, and there was an incumbent named Anita Alvarez who was in office, uh, and a reformer named Kim Fox who ran against her. Kim Fox ultimately won. And Kim Fox ran on a pretty radical platform compared to what Alvarez was um, was representing, and she got engulfed in the Laquan McDonald shooting scandal, which really has had a monumental effect on shifting the political terrain here in the city because it, uh, it motivated all types of parts of the city that previously had been, you know, not as engaged to get out in the streets and protest and demand not just uh, reform, but the resignation of Gary McCarthy, who was the uh, police superintendent of the time, uh, Anita Alvarez, the state's attorney, and Rahm Emanuel. And so the group of Sada's daughters, rather than campaigning directly for Fox, what they did was be a campaign against Anita Alvarez through a campaign they called By Anita. Um, and that included things like knocking on doors, but also protesting her at public events, doing banner drops. Um, so there's other kind of creative ways that these groups have gotten involved in electoral politics that maybe hadn't been before. But I think it has to be said as well that this does represent a national mood and what we're seeing in terms of people being done with this old guard of politics. And you see it through the election of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, Rashida Tlaib in Michigan. These are people that are younger, that represent a different type of politics that's far more uncompromising than what we've seen in the past. Um, and there's really people are sick of corporate Democrats and the agenda that they've provided for us. And there's no better representation of that, I think, than Rahm Emanuel. So, um, so yeah, so I think that all of those things have helped to create this environment where social movements and community groups and even labor unions have become more focused on um, taking advantage of the opening that has been created by this larger shift to the left we're seeing nationally. I think it's fascinating that there was this push by establishment Democrats, by people from the Democratic Party, who were telling people in uh, Occupy in 2011, you should be focusing on electoral politics. You shouldn't be focusing on these bigger issue things. You should be focusing on electoral politics. And now they are. And what does the Democratic Party want? Nothing to do with the activists who are trying to make an effect on electoral politics. It's, it's, it's just a matter of, you know, be careful of what you wish for. And speaking of things that uh, the mayor has shoved down our throats. Last week, the Chicago Sun-Times reported, thanks to contracts, Rahm Emanuel's extended to many key agency heads. Whoever replaces Emanuel will be, will be stuck with them for years to come or pay handsomely for the privilege of making new appointments. A clean sweep of the heads of the Chicago Park District, City Colleges of Chicago, Chicago Public Schools, Chicago Housing Authority would cost at least $820,000 in golden parachute salaries and more for benefits. In addition to the salaries for the new appointees, Michael P. Kelly has run the Chicago Police District since 2011. He was among the first agency heads appointed by Emanuel. Kelly didn't have a contract, though, until December, two months ago, and it lasts until at least December 31st, 2022. Kelly's deal was done just after Emanuel chose political retirement over a likely battle for a third term. Emanuel has long been the number one cheerleader for the $500 million Obama Presidential Center, but while he won't be at City Hall to see that controversial project through, Kelly would continue to oversee a controversial golf course merger tied to the Obama Center project. Is Rahm, to what degree can Rahm ensure that his administration and his pinstripe patronage and his new machine, how much can he ensure that they stay in power no matter who's in the city council, no matter who the new mayor is? Well, I think you bring up a really important point that there's all kind of mechanizations going on now behind the scenes 
that are going to have long-term effects on the way that this city is run and the ability for um, the new class of political um, leadership to deal with the challenges that we face. And many of these challenges are stemming directly from Rom's mismanagement of the city, and particularly when it comes to the finances. You know, if you remember back in 2015, uh, when Rahm Emanuel got into a, was forced into a runoff by Chuy Garcia, who was the progressive challenger backed by Chicago Teachers Union, uh, his whole um, attack on Garcia was saying, oh, this guy doesn't know how to manage budgets. I'm the trustworthy guy. You know, he put on that fuzzy sweater in the infamous campaign ad and said, I can get us out of our problems. After, and he won, uh, and after that, the city's credit rating was downgraded. We've had to take out massive loans um, and and we deal with all these toxic swaps with the banks that the city has used to fund the pension crisis. And as a result, these financial institutions are the ones that are going to be paid off first. You know, that's written into their contracts so that any new revenue, there's a you know, massive push for progressive revenue in the city right now. It's a critical task, I think, of not only new mayoral administration, but city council as well, to make sure that we can um, tax the financial entities and the you know rich residents of the city to be able to fund basic public services. But because of these deals, that revenue is going to be going directly to pay off the same financial institutions that we had to borrow from to pay down the debt and deal with the debt crisis for years to come after Rom's out of office. So that's something that um, whoever takes power is going to have to deal with. The other question that is related to what you bring up is that the city's business community is now uh, kind of a crossroads. I don't think they expected this to be a runoff between Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle. There's plenty of reasons to question both candidates' progressive credentials. Uh, But when it comes to representing the business class, that's something that I think was far more... uh, People saw Bill Daly as and to a certain extent, Susanna Mendoza, as somebody who could carry on the agenda of the corporate elite in the city. And that agenda is now going to come into um, question with one of these two people as mayor. And because Preckwinkle has the support of a number of powerful labor unions in the city, the CTU, as I mentioned, as well as SEIU, it's going to be very difficult for them to get into her campaign and influence it in the same way, I think, as they would be able to if it was somebody, you know, from their rank, somebody like a Bill Daly is insanely rich and was funded by Ken Griffin, the richest guy in Illinois, who had also bankrolled Republican Bruce Rauner's uh, run for governor when he, uh, when he ran. The, the city's business class is now going to have to figure out what they're, what they're going to do, where they're going to play their cards. But in many ways, I think what you're laying out is right, is that uh, Emmanuel has made sure that there's going to be um, there's going to be issues at play that the new uh, political leadership is going to have to deal with, and it's going to be a massive challenge. I mean, this is going to be a very difficult term for whoever takes on the mayorship of the city, and groups that have, hold enormous political power in the city are the same ones that hold great economic power, groups like the CME Group, which includes the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Board of Trade they um, are still going to hold enormous sway. They were able to get massive tax breaks out of Emanuel just by threatening to leave town. You know, like a capital flight is always what uh, is threatened when organizations that have see their bottom line threatened, uh, you know, they, they want to extract some concessions. So they say, oh, we're going to pick up and leave. 
as if, you know, Cincinnati is going to become the next Chicago or something. Um, and because of that, Rom gave them massive tax breaks. They're going to try to exert that same pressure on whoever is the next mayor. So I think a lot of the uh, same institutions that hold sway over political decision-making in the city are going to remain regardless of the fact that Rahm Emanuel is going to be gone. You write about the 2016 primary election coalition of BYP 100, Asada's Daughters, People's Action, Grassroots Collaborative and Black Roots Alliance, leading to Cook County State's Attorney Anita Alvarez's defeat in the primaries again in 2016. Alvarez was the county's attorney, as you were saying, when Laquan McDonald was murdered by police. Did Laquan's murder then, uh, did his murder by police create a sustainable new political coalition in Chicago that can challenge the machine? I think it definitely brought to life a lot of uh, uh, movements that were potentially, their, their political power might have seemed more latent and underground, but I brought that to the fore because groups were out. I mean, there were sustained protests after that video was released for um for weeks and months across the city, um, it really spoke to this um, frustration, not only around the issue of police violence, but how it connects to so many other um, issues that have um, kept poor communities, and especially poor communities of color, um, drained of any political power in the city. And that is you know, rampant violence that we see. Um, and it's not just violence citywide. This is very segregated violence, and it's only happening or it's happening almost entirely in communities that have been deprived of financial resources, places where there's no job opportunities, places where there's you know no good public schools, there's no mental health facilities, there's no um, good public transportation. These are um, areas of the city that have been systematically disinvested in for years. And, you know, Laquan McDonald came out of that. And I think that his killing shined a light, not just on the specific issue of police abuse in the city, but how it connects to these larger systemic issues. And so many groups, like a number of those groups that you just mentioned, Grassroots Collaborative, Black Roots Alliance, which includes groups like um, Action Now, a powerful um, progressive group uh, in the city, they sprang into action in response to this because they saw that this was um, this was a real unifying moment for the city. And it came pretty soon after Rahm Emanuel's re-election, which um, was seen as um, put in, you know, pushed into question as a result of this because he has you know, still not really answered all the questions in terms of why that video was suppressed for so long. Um, and people said, you know, this is a cover-up, and it's a citywide cover-up, and it speaks to the lack of transparency and the lack of democracy in this administration and in the political leadership. So um, I think his, his legacy, Rahm Emanuel's legacy, is really secured at this point. And in Chicago, it's one of political toxicity because we're seeing everybody who ran for mayor, essentially, and this whole new slate of city council candidates run as far away from him as possible. You know, they wouldn't um, ever want to be seen in a you know campaign ad with him. And Emanuel himself basically stopped doing public um uh, stopped having any public events after that because he was getting shouted down at all of them. He's much happier, I think, uh, being a talking head on some of these um, corporate media shows than he is actually being a mayor of a big city. And I think that that's something that became very clear to him after these protests engulfed the city. And because of that, we, you know, people were motivated to run that might not have run 
otherwise. So I think it's important to credit the not the fact the video was released, but the sustained response to that video that um, came out of the social movements in the city. The the rest of the nation followed the Chicago Teachers Union strike here in 2012. The CTU's first in 25 years, with strikes across the country and still ongoing now for its seventh year happening right now in Oakland. Do you think the rest of the U.S. is going to, again, follow in Chicago's footsteps and challenge the status quo, especially within the Democratic Party? Well, I hope so. Uh, that it will be seen, right, that what will be the ultimate outcome. The dust hasn't settled on a lot of these races yet. We're going to you know, have to keep a close eye on what happens here in the next five weeks ahead of the runoff elections. But the message is really loud and clear, and that it's that the, the left is winning and the machine is on the run. And I think that that's something that can be uh, translated on a national level as well. We're about to see a pretty, already seeing a heated Democratic presidential primary shaping up. Um, it's interesting that on Sunday, Bernie Sanders is actually holding a massive campaign event here in Chicago, um, the, the city that is now undergoing this kind of progressive upheaval uh, that I write about. And he was the germ in many ways that inspired a lot of this uh, electoral activity when he first called for a political revolution back in 2015 and 2016. It wasn't just about supporting his campaign. What he consistently said uh, was we need to get more people involved in running for office. And I think that is something we've seen nationwide. It's not all because of Bernie, but it's because of the fact that people are fed up with what's going on. They see Trump in office. They see a Republican Party dead set on uh, cutting taxes for the rich and letting the planet burn. And they want an alternative. And I think that that's, we are seeing that. As I mentioned, there's people like Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, Elon Omar. Um, there's a whole set of candidates on the uh, national level that have taken advantage of the, this hunger for a more progressive alternative. But then on the local level as well, as we're seeing in Chicago and the city council races, there's people that are motivated to run as a result of this because this, this kind of stuff uh, is uh, contagious. You know, people see what's happening in one city and they want to they say, hey, we can do, can't we do that here? You know, we have plenty of activists where we are suffering from many of the same issues that are happening in Chicago. It was interesting because, you know, it's a democratic city, so we're not, uh, we, we have these primary, these, these elections that are not considered primaries, they're, you know, non-affiliated uh, elections, so people all call themselves Democrats, but that doesn't mean there aren't right-wing people with the same interests at heart as Republicans on the national level that are running, and I think that that has helped to make people understand that there's people that call themselves Democrats that don't hold the same values as a lot of the progressives do. And I think that that's going to create a climate for a real debate over where we want the direction of the Democratic Party and national politics to go. And I think right now, as I said, in that battle, the left is really winning. But when it comes to that potential for the Democratic Party to shift to the left, the day after Bernie Sanders announced his candidacy for the uh, potential presidential nomination in 2020, I saw a lot of Democrats online vehemently attacking Bernie for running, that he was an impractical candidate who was unelectable because he will not attract the Obama voters who voted for Trump back to the party. Some criticized Bernie for being old and white and a man, and still others attacked Bernie uh, for anything, including my favorite, 
that the mainstream media had forced Bernie upon us because Bernie is good for ratings, that the mainstream media, by allegedly supporting Bernie, was undermining the Democrats' democratic process. Is the Democratic Party or the Democratic electorate moving to the left, or is it retrenching back into centrism with candidates like Joe Biden? Well, Biden hasn't announced yet, so we'll, we'll see about that. I, I do think much like, I, I think the electorate is certainly moving to the left, and we see that be based on polling data from policies that have been put out by progressives like um, Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna and others around uh, Medicare for All, you know, supported by 70% of the population. Um, majority of people support free, making college tuition free. Green New Deal has um, a majority of Republicans even support that. So I think people are moving to, to the left and rightly see the challenge we face around inequality as a, a fundamental challenge that the country is going to have to take on. That issue and the existential threat of climate change, I think, are animating a lot of the um, political activity that we're seeing happen across the board on the Democratic Party and why we are seeing the every, pretty much everybody that's running for president right now falling in line behind the type of agenda that Bernie laid out back in 2016. Now, I don't think that means that the centrists are gone. You know, Rahm Emanuel is still around and his ilk will continue to try to um, you make, make an impact on the direction of the party. There's groups like the think tanks Third Way and New Democracy that are going to fight to the nail to um, throw a wrench in the move towards policies like Medicare for All that will threaten the bottom line of the same type of corporate funders that have been keeping them afloat for years. And that's where I see this fight happening. It's between whether you know we're going to see a Democratic Party that finally embraces something that represents working-class policy in the United States, or if the corporate class gets its way and the party stays the, the way it has been for many years. And I think that is what is represented by someone like a Joe Biden, who's based his political career off of taking contributions from credit card and insurance companies and um, has, you know, he, he might even throw some bones to the left by coming out from more progressive positions, but his record really shows that he doesn't represent the type of left-wing alternative that what voters are looking for right now. And I think we see that, you know, in polls across the country, as I said, but also if you look at the ground, you know, people are not clamoring to see policies like, you know, means-tested tax subsidies or something. They want to see a uh, jobs guarantee. They want to see getting uh, their health care paid for and covered and free at the point of service. That's the type of policies that actual working class people are interested in. So I think that that's going to be the fight that we're going to see continue to play out for at least the next year and a half and probably a lot longer than that. My next question was going to be, what message, if any, did yesterday's Chicago mayoral election send to the National Democratic Party or Democrats in general? But I don't even know if that message would necessarily be received. So what message was sent, and what message do you think the National Democratic Party took from yesterday's election? I think they're, I think they're paying attention. I think that, the, for one thing, we were, there was a public advocate race in New York City as well, but pretty much Chicago elections were the only uh, large-scale municipal elections 
yesterday. So um, I'm a little surprised we haven't seen more national coverage of it today. That being said, there's, you know, uh, <laughs> Michael Cohen talking about Trump lying and being racist on Capitol Hill. So I guess, you know, that's where the media tends to go. But I, I think that the lesson that they will likely take is that they're under threat and they need to either retrench, as you said, and try to put up some stronger defenses um, or they need to get comfortable with this new class of political leadership that is not waiting around and doesn't want to you know, wait their turn anymore, that's fighting to take power now in order to re- redistribute not just uh, wealth. I mean, I don't think that, I think that that is a primary goal of a lot of these um, political movements is to see a more equitable, equitable redistribution of wealth, but it's also about political power and democracy, because for so long, people have been kept out of the decision-making process. Um, one of the people that, one that I mentioned before, uh, Maria Haddon, she uh, is a community organizer. She's worked on participatory budgeting issues for over a decade, and she's also a board member of BYP 100, the group we talked about earlier that uh, worked around police accountability. She took out uh, an incumbent named Joe Moore. Uh, Joe Moore had got elected in 91, and he carved out space for himself as a critic of Mayor Daley at the time. Um, but he quickly, once Rahm got into office, he became one of Rahm Manuel's closest allies and took developer money from real estate developers. He oversaw uh, an affordable housing crisis in the ward, you know, new luxury developments going up. And uh, people were sick of him voting with Rahm Manuel almost 100% of the time. And, and even though Joe Moore had actually been a champion of participatory budgeting, which is basically you know, a more democratic way to decide on the allocation of financial resources in the ward, he, his whole uh, aldermanic uh, uh, office had been not transparent about that, and people did not feel engaged. And Maria Haddon, who had worked on these issues for years, rightly called him out on that and said, hey, we actually need to fight for democracy and so that people can have more of a say in the lived experiences that they have. And, and I think we're seeing that uh, in places across the country. People want more control over their lives. That's what the fight for um, labor rights has always been about, you know, wanting to have a union at work so that you can have a say over the conditions on your job. And that's what uh, having a more representative field of candidates who look like and come from the backgrounds that other working people do. Um, that's that's the message that is censored that. So I think that that's going to be one thing that we'll continue to see is that uh, people, are, people don't want to just have more money in their pockets. They want to have more control uh, over their lives, and they want to see government as uh, an avenue to provide that for them rather than something that they just complain about all the time. And people have decided that that's the only way to do that is to run for office yourself or to join an organization that is uh, contesting for political power. And that's scary to the people that have been on the top for a long time and that have been able to keep people at bay, essentially, by giving them the bare minimum and saying, hey, we're keeping, the, we're keeping things steady for now. That's not, that's not enough anymore. We're seeing the live reality for so many people is lives of destitution and, um, and precarity when it comes to employment, when it comes to, you know, there's a lack of security 
in people's daily lives right now, whether that's physical security or economic security or what have you. And the only way to rational way to respond to that, I think, is by working towards making a change. And that's what is happening here in Chicago and what's happening around the country. Joe Moore is also the alderman who is behind the statement by the city council to condemn the Iraq war. And Miles, as you know, the Chicago City Council is in charge of declaring all wars around the world and has complete control over U.S. foreign policy. So that had a huge impact on the wars in the Middle East. And as you may have remembered, we pulled out of Iraq immediately upon Joe Moore's suggestion. Uh, And in other big news today, outside of uh, Michael Cohen, uh, two armed nuclear powers are shooting down each other's military jets. But... That's for another time. You write, uh, Chicago's next mayor is likely to face a city council very different from the rubber stamp backing Emmanuel. Dick Simpson, a professor of political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a former alderman, as well as being a past guest on our show several times and my former next-door neighbor, and I still own his office chair that he discarded 15 years ago. He explains that in most election cycles, very few viable progressive city council challenges run. This year, he estimates at least 10 stand a real chance of winning. The victors would join the 11-member progressive bloc already on the 50-member council, where Simpson says they will have, quote, a wide open opportunity to chart the future of the city. So there was a chance of having a 21-alderman progressive block in the 50-seat council. Do you know what the score is right now? Well, um, it's hard to say exactly what it depends on what you qualify as a progressive. There's people, you know, uh, Joe Marino, for example, was on the progressive caucus, but he got defeated uh, yesterday by an upstart uh, left challenger. So that's gonna that that one might not be additive, but I also don't I don't think many people in the city saw Joe Moreno as a real progressive champion. Um, I'll just give a quick rundown of some of the um, electoral victories for the progressive movement uh, last night, and I think that will shine a little bit of light on where things stand now. As I mentioned, Maria Haddon won outright. Um, it was a pretty shocking victory, I think, for most people. Um, she will be the next alderman of the 49th Ward. Um, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, as I mentioned, farthest left member of the city council, he got reelected. They, the, there was a candidate running against him named Amanda Udietrecht. Her campaign was almost entirely funded by Rahm Emanuel's donors and by big real estate developers. They ran an AstroTurf campaign against Carlos. He still beat her by 20 points. Um, so I think that was a pretty resounding victory for him. Um, as I mentioned, Daniel Espada, he won in the first ward by ousting Joe Moreno. Moreno actually took more money from property management companies than any other alderman on the city council, and his district represents uh, neighborhoods like Wicker Park and Logan Square that have seen this massive gentrification, so huge luxury developments going up, prices that rival those of San Francisco and Manhattan. Um, and people were sick of him, so he uh, he lost resoundingly to La Spada. La Spada is a longtime housing organizer. Uh, he's worked at a group called Logan Square Neighbors Neighborhood Association for about ten years. Um, so, and he ran specifically on affordable housing issues. Also, uh, in terms of the runoffs that I mentioned, Rosana Rodriguez uh, she is leading right now over incumbent Deb Mel in the thirty third ward. Rosana Rodriguez is um, 
a longtime activist. She's originally from Puerto Rico. She ran on affordable housing, on fully funding public schools. She had the support of the CTU. Um, and Deb Mel, her opponent, has also taken massive donations from real estate developers and seen gentrification in her ward. She's also the daughter of Dick Mel, who was one of the most powerful aldermen. I think he was uh, in that seat for over 30 years. Um, he was definitely an old-school powerhouse political family, the Mel's, and it, that's the first runoff in that ward since the 1930s. Um, and that happened yesterday. And Rosanna had never run for office before. She, her campaign was completely volunteer um, powered with massive amounts of work put in by community groups um, um, from the neighborhood and really from around the city. Also, in the 20th Ward, Jeanette Taylor um, is leading in her race. She's a community activist. She actually went on a hunger strike to save Diet High School from closing. She also fought to bring a trauma center to the South Side. She's a really amazing activist. She's winning right now in her race in the 20th. Um, and Byron Sicha Lopez is uh, leading in the 25th Ward in Pilsen. And he, the race there is interesting because Danny Solis was the incumbent. He dropped out. Later, people didn't really know why. Later it came out. He was on, uh, he was wearing a wire for the FBI and taping Alderman Ed Burke, uh, who's all Burke has been in office for 50 years, and he's caused all kinds of uh, referendums on corruption in the city in the past few weeks. But Solis, it came out, Solis was wearing a wire. Solis has been on the lam for weeks since then. Nobody knows where he is. He was the head of the zoning committee, and he's just gone. So he already wasn't running for office, but it's a very strange situation there. But anyway, so Byron Sicho Lopez uh, runs a group called the Pilsen Alliance, which is a uh, activist group that organizes around affordable housing, around immigrant protections, all sorts of issues. Um, what's interesting about Rosanna, Jeanette, and Byron is they were all endorsed by, along with uh, Carlos Rosa, they were all endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America here in the city. And that's a group that has never really had an electoral arm before. But this year they put lots of effort into working on these campaigns, and they saw some pretty incredible successes yesterday. And then I'll, this is just to give you a sense of some of the other races, Andre Vasquez, who also is a Democratic Socialist, he uh, is in the runoff in the 40th Ward against incumbent Pat O'Connor, who's been in office forever. Um, he's uh, previously a community organizer. He works with a group called People's Action. He used to be a rapper, actually a very popular rapper in Chicago. Um, so very interesting that it would be to see him on city council. Um, Sue Garza is a progressive down in the 10th Ward. She won her re-election, the same with Scott Wagesback in the 32nd Ward, um, and Rafa Yanez in the 15th Ward is going into a runoff. And he's interesting because he's actually a former CPD officer, um, but he ran specifically on issues of police accountability and stopping the construction of this massive $95 million cop academy that Rahm Emanuel is trying to build on the west side before he leaves office, another way he wants to you know, seal his legacy. Um, so Giannis made that a big part of his campaign, stopping this, and his opponent, Raymond Lopez, is very involved. He's extremely close to Rom, so it's another race where it's kind of a referendum on uh, Rom. So as you can see, there's a whole slew of progressives that are either have either won outright or are in a very good position going into the runoffs uh, in April, and I don't know many people in the progressive community who expected this outcome. I think it's a pretty fundamental um, shift to the left we're seeing. And then, of course, on the mayor's side, Lori Lightfoot and Preckwinkle, they were not the machine's chosen candidates. Um, Lori Lightfoot is a 
corporate lawyer. She was appointed by Rahm Emanuel to head the police review board. And interestingly, a lot of people are giving her credit for her work on police reform when police accountability activists are, are pretty in opposition to her from, uh, from what I've seen because of her role in um, running these police review hearings where they had to um, take testimony from activists in the city and people who are related to victims of police brutality. She had a pretty um, rough approach to that, uh, and activists remember that, and they're not very happy with her. She also worked under Daly, um, obviously was a prosecutor before, so her progressive credentials are definitely thrown into question. Um, and then Tony Preckwinkle is head of the Cook County Democratic Party. She was an alderman for a long time in Hyde Park, um, and she has connections to people like Ed Burke and um, Joe Berrios, which has made people call into question her independence as well. Um, she, though, has been backed by a number of progressive groups and um, people like Carlos Rosa and Will Gazzardi, a progressive state representative, are behind that campaign. But it should be said that both of them, regardless of the questioning of their uh, intention, their actual motivations or their records, they are running on platforms that are way more progressive than what Rom was running on uh, and has governed with since he's been in office, as well as people like Bill Daly and Susanna Mendoza and Gary McCarthy, dear God, who was uh, running for mayor. So we're going to see more uh, progressive agendas in place, I think, regardless of who becomes the next mayor. And uh, it's just important to remind everybody that uh, Alderman James Kappelman from Uptown, he is in charge of the committee that uh, approves of the funding for things like Lincoln Yards, for things like the Police Academy. And it looks like he's going to possibly rush these things through in the next few weeks so uh, Rahm Emanuel's legacy and all of his supporters, financial supporters who are behind this massive, massive new development, Lincoln Yards, and who are behind this massive new development, uh, the Police Academy out in West Garfield Park, uh, it looks like uh, they're going to do everything they can to make sure that the next mayor doesn't have a say on that. When both the candidates who are left in this mayoral runoff are opposed to both. And it's really just amazing to me that it's just continuing. Our final question, as always, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Chicago in 2010 was 45.3% white, 31.7% non-Hispanic white. 32% black, 5% Asian, and 3% from two or more races. The ethnic makeup of the population is 28% Hispanic and 72% belonging to non-Hispanic groups. How much damage did the election, did the victory, the runoff, the first and second place uh, vote getters in this election yesterday, in our mayoral election, how much damage has yesterday's election done to white supremacy within City Hall? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I do think that when it comes, to, I don't think we're seeing, we, we've seen outright white supremacy as perhaps we, you know, had seen during the famous council wars in 83 after Harold Washington got elected and famously the city council refused to even consider any of his legislation um, in a pretty obviously racially motivated uh, protest of his administration, Harold Washington, of course, the first black mayor in Chicago's history, um, and uh, probably the last time we've seen a progressive uh, administration in City Hall, um, and not only was it racially motivated, but these uh, 
folks involved in the council wars were uh, doing everything they could to stop a progressive agenda from passing. Um, it was a little bit more naked, I would say, the, the racial animus at that time. I think that it's uh, toned down. I don't think that we can um, ignore the real historical uh, achievement that will be represented by having a black woman mayor in the city and what that means in terms of representation for uh, communities that have been traditionally locked out of the halls of power, despite the fact that, you know, these are two long-term, um, you know, political beings in many ways, even if they haven't always been in elected office. Um, it's incredible that, you know, after Rahm Emanuel, we're going to see a black woman in office. I think that that will have some impact on how the city is viewed and, you know, the public face of it. But really, when it comes down to questions of racial equality, it's a matter of what kind of policies are being pursued and whether we do more to provide opportunities for the same groups that are fleeing the city. And we've seen this massive exodus of black Chicagoans in recent years, and it's largely because of many of those issues I talked about before, the systemic disinvestment in black neighborhoods. And the legacy of Chicago is one of institutional racism where, you know, since the um, racist uh, loans and redlining of housing companies in the um, early 20th century helped to create a intentionally segregated city. As a result of that, resources have been drained out of those communities. And it's why every time there's an election, you see these debates over investing in the communities and neighborhoods rather than downtown. And that's really what has been represented by Ron Manuel's mayorship is just pouring resources into this glitzy downtown, um, and that's the same thing that's represented by the Lincoln Yards project you brought up before. It's just kind of making a new downtown uh, a little bit farther northwest. Well, we see communities like Englewood, like Chatham, like Austin be, you know, drained of, uh, of resources. They're food deserts. There's no access to quality public schools. So that's going to be a public policy approach that's going to need to be needed to be solved. Uh, needed to solve those problems, and that's possible that, that you know we can see that it's much much more likely that we're going to see real solutions to these problems with the, the political leadership it looks like we're going to have in this next term than was possible under Rahm Emanuel and his rubber stamp city council. So in terms of defeating white supremacy, I think it's going to have to happen through um, public policy that lifts up black and brown and poor communities across the city and starts making the insanely rich people that live in this city and call it home actually pay up. And that's the only way that that's going to change. Miles, I really appreciate you being on the show, the podcast this week. I'm sorry I couldn't make it on Saturday's show when I came down with the flu. I'm really glad that you rescheduled with us, and I look forward to having you back on when uh, we get closer to the mayoral election or maybe afterwards so we can give another recap. I really appreciate you being on. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chuck. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.